It is time once again for Catalog and Cocktails. It's your honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management presented by Data.World with tasty beverages in our hands. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd, product guy at Data.World, joined by Juan Cicada. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicada. I'm the principal scientist at Data.World. And as always, it's a pleasure. It is middle of the week, end of the day, and time to finally have a drink and chat about data. And I'm super excited. Doris Lee here is today, and we've been trying to get Doris on uh, the show for a long time. We finally met uh, like over the summer at Snowflake, and I've been following a lot of the stuff that she's been doing because it's like I love it when we have academics who are like doing doing really awesome stuff, and they're pushing it to startups. And this is more we need more of this stuff, I think. Doris, it is super super awesome to have you, former CEO and co-founder of Ponder, which was recently acquired by Snowflake last month. How are you doing? Good. Juan and Tim, uh, super, super happy to be here. Super excited for our conversation today. Fantastic. Uh, let's kick it off. What are, what are we drinking and what are we toasting for today? Oh, well, it's early afternoon here in Pacific time. So it's just a cup of tea for me on my desk. And uh, uh, I wish I was sipping a glass of pina colada on the beach, but not today. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. not today. Um, but yeah, yeah uh, I, I'm toasting to a great conversation ahead of us. And Really excited to, to, to chat with you all today. Awesome. Well, excited about it as well. Um, we, we actually have our all hands week over at Data.World. So the whole company is in town in Austin, Texas, which is a lot of fun. That means the, gar the bar cart is full and ready. Um, and I am drinking a uh, tequila and blackberry lemonade soda. And then what are you drinking? I'm drinking uh, just a traditional good old highball. Hmm. Uh, just whiskey and soda, and it's a Johnny Walker Red and some Topo Chico, and this is nice and refreshing because we'll have a lot of a lot of fun activities this week. So, oh. so cheers! Cheers to getting people together and for great conversation. Yeah, cheers, cheers Doris. Cheers. All right, so we got our warm up question today. So today we're talking about how to make data science more accessible, more intuitive. So, what is something? It could be either a product or a service that you find really intuitive and usable. Or you can flip it around, like something you don't find intuitive. And something that's terrible. <laughs> but it is you, It is needed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, uh, this is like completely not data related, but like Slack is, I just love using Slack. Uh, like we use Slack as, as part of Ponder. Um, you know, Slack is amazing. And I think what Slack did was it just like kind of raised the bar for what we thought of like workplace messaging. It's like workplace messaging was just like emails and like, I don't know, like, Microsoft, like, I don't even you know, like Outlook or something. Um, it's just this like really boring, like communication channel. And I think Slack had just made it really fun for people to message each other. It was like a huge part of our culture, having like emojis and everything. So it just made it really fun. Um, I don't know if you all know about the story behind Slack, but I think it started off being like these, these founders trying to create like a gaming company. And then at the end of the day, they're like, Oh, this is like a great like messaging platform, and they like pivoted the whole company to be like a messaging platform. So it's it's super that, cool. Now that you say that, I'm like, yeah, that that's actually pretty. I really enjoy Slack. I mean, yeah, uh, I think there's people who are like there's different sides. There are different sides of the fence and stuff, but I like it. I it is very intuitive. Yeah. Well, Data.World's the first company I've worked at where actually I think we spend more time in Slack than on any other communication medium, which I find very interesting. So. Interesting, but not, you're not a big fan. Well, of I don't know. Well, I mean, <laughs> Slack is all real time. You know, there's some days where I'm like, I need to turn this off. <laughs> it's too much, but it is very intuitive, right? Yeah. 
How about you, Tim? Do you have a, uh, a product or service you find really intuitive? So I was thinking about this question and I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to answer this question? Um, this is sort of a, a cop-out answer because I mean, we've been talking about it almost every week, but like I've been really astounded by how many different ways that I can use chat GPT. Like, like, like natural language. Like I dig it. Like I, I want more natural language. Like the other day I was like, so I was emailing somebody and they were like, Hey, like I'm available this time to this time and this time to this time and this time to this time. And it's all UK time. And I'm like, Oh my God, I need to do all the translations. Right. And I'm like, I wonder if I just copy and paste this in the chat GPT, is it going to translate the whole thing? And of course it did. Like, of course it did. So anyways, I love natural language. Chat GPT has been great. Yeah, that's it. I was thinking about this as like, what was something that wasn't intuitive and, and usable that it did become? And I think my answer is about maps. Like now your Google mm. maps and all that stuff. I remember mm. David before it was like printed it out of map quests and stuff like that not, that really changed the world yeah now you can only get lost if your cell connection is bad right yeah <laughs> all right all right let's kick it off uh doris honest no bs how do you make data science successful what does that even mean yeah so i think the funny thing is like data science has seen a lot of like uh shifts and changes over the past you know decade or so like um i don't know if you all remember like i think like early 2010-ish, like, like Harvard Business Review, they had this like famous article that talked about how like data science is like the sexiest job in like the 21st century, right? Like people kept talking about that. There was a huge buzz around like data science being like a huge game changer. Now, I think it like data science as a field has evolved a lot since then. Like we've seen tooling like and, and, and just the field evolve um, and uh, I mean, at that time, like the 2010-ish era, like it, it was still very nascent. Um, tooling was not standardized. And essentially like data science had this, like data scientists had this really hard job of like, hey, you need to be an expert in your domain. So maybe that's finance, maybe that's biology, like genomics, you know, whatever is your domain. You need to be an expert in statistics, machine learning, programming. You need to know how to program. Uh, you also need to know how to work with big data. So oftentimes that means, you know, you need a CS degree or uh, you've, you've done software engineering in the past. And so like, where do you even find these like unicorns or like these really rare unicorns uh, in the market? Uh, you know, many of them typically also have like a PhD in, in the sciences, like, you know, that could be astronomy, physics, genomics or, or whatnot. Um, and so I think that uh, when we think about data science uh, at that time, it was a field with a very high barrier of entry. And a lot of my work over the past, you know, five years uh, and, and even uh, before then was was really around like, how do you make, how do you lower that bar? Like, how do you make it easier so that anyone can kind of uh, do data science, explore their data and really understand what's going on with the, their, their data? Because I think there is a tremendous amount of value for domain experts, um, people that are, uh, you know, specialized experts in their domain uh, and giving to, to give them the power of working with data uh, because they can see the data in a lens that like, uh, you know, us as just like, you know, uh, software engineers or like uh, computer scientists, like we see it in a different lens just because we aren't in those domain. Like we're not a genomicist. We aren't uh, you know, a domain expert in finance, for example. And so those are, you know, those are, that that is like one of my dreams is like, what if everyone, like everyone in the world, uh, whatever their specialty is, can work with data. Um, and so, yeah, like 
it was probably a very long answer, but basically when I think about like accessibility and data, it's about like enabling that like 99% of the population to be able to work with the data. I love that. I mean, I think that's the dream, right? Is that we don't want people to have to have all this specialized technology and tooling knowledge just to be able to answer questions about their business or about how things are going. And, you know, I, I, I do, I do wonder though, um, you know, do you see a difference between kind of make, lowering the barrier for data science versus, you know, lowering the barrier for, um, you know, uh, business intelligence or more basic kind of questions for data? Do you, do you see those as two different things or are they actually kind of the same thing when you look at them? Yeah, I think, uh, Tim, you're definitely right that there's kind of this spectrum of like when we talk about data science, BI, um, I think um, I think all of them are kind of in the same spirit of like, hey, how do we allow more people to access, understand, visualize their data? Um, mm -hmm. Actually, early on in uh, a lot of my PhD work, I, I focused a lot around uh, what you just talked about, which is like low code, no code kind of use cases. Uh, so you standard like your standard sort of BI charting tools where you have an interface, you're clicking through, you know, various different buttons to create a chart. Um, and I think, you know, I think one of the best examples of that, uh, two tools that comes to mind is like spreadsheets, like Microsoft Excel did a really great job in, uh, you know, converting like raw, boring numbers in a grid to something that you can actually work with, with your mouse clicks and everything. Um, and, you know, create powerful formulas, calculations. Um, so that is like, in, in my, like, in my sense, like a very successful tool that enabled like a large number of like, um, you know, white collared uh, sort of like anyone who is is working on a computer to be work be, be able to work with their data. Their data being like any like uh, table of numbers. Uh, the other tool that did a really good job in this is uh, is Tableau and BI tools. Um, Tableau not only said hey, we have this grid of numbers, let's convert it into very beautiful charts that actually tell a story. Um, and you don't need to know any programming languages. You don't need to be uh, an expert in charting. Um, you can you can use Tableau, point and click, drag and drop, uh, and bam, you have a visualization. So those I think are like early examples, again, around um, over the last 10, 20 years where data has become easier and easier for people to work with. And I think now we're in an era where, uh, you know, people are looking for more complex uh, analysis, you know, forecasts, um, you know, even running machine learning on their data. All of those things, I think, are like part of these like more advanced uh, machine learning and data science use cases. And I think um, we're in a new era where like we need better tooling to allow the 99% of the spreadsheet users, the uh, you know BI users, to be able to use uh, and access those technologies. Yeah, let's take the next step, right? So, so, so you started off kind of giving like the call it the, the the original data science uh, this data scientist definition, right? It's like this big unicorn with this overlaps. That, yeah. I mean, statistics, programming, big data, machine learning, experts in murder, right? So, how? I mean, 10 years later, like, what is the definition of a data scientist today? I mean, it's not that big. It's not that unicorn, right? So what is it then today? And, and how and how has that evolved? I think the line is definitely blurred between what we traditionally called like a business analyst or like a data analyst uh, to uh, data scientist and even like 
you know, the new term like machine learning engineer, like, you know, there is a spectrum of like what people are doing across all of these different fields. I think as we sort of lower the bar in terms of uh, what it takes to um, be doing data science, we're going to see more of the blurring of the line. One example of this is actually in a lot of like financial use cases, like financial, uh, you know, banks, quants, um, people are moving away from People aren't moving away from spreadsheets, but they're uh, spreadsheet users, uh, people who are typically spending like 90 plus percent of their time in spreadsheets. They're now learning Python. They're now learning data science so that they can do more with their data. They could do time series forecasting. They can do, you know, summarization of their data and so on. Um, so that's one example of where I think in the future, like if uh, if like data science do become more and more accessible, like we're not going to have the title a data scientist everyone is going to be a data scientist like you might be a biologist like your title might be like hey i'm a i'm a medical doctor i'm a, a biologist but you are a data scientist too interesting so maybe the data science sort of role was born around like this specialized skill set originally right and so folks that could learn that skill set could step into those shoes but you mentioned some different words here you mentioned like statistics programming big data machine learning like mm -hmm. is basically is the goal to if as each one of those things becomes more accessible then this idea of the data scientist becomes less unique you're you're imbuing the power of the data scientist onto the business well, analyst well, on, the, onto the program well, to, add, to add to this is this mm -hmm. i mean i'm going back to the word accessible here is is it really about the tools that are lowering the barrier is it or is it more about like some of the education or is it i mean one or the other because i think like we've been using spreadsheets forever right and then you can argue people argue like well i'm doing data science well but you're doing things in the spreadsheet but you are still kind of make generating the same outcome i happen to use in a spreadsheet and i'm going to call myself a data scientist like that's fine right i mean that was a tool that i used uh and i guess more and more tooling is kind of making it accessible uh but also how much of it is actually the training versus like understanding how to go do things with with data i'm curious to get your yeah, thoughts I here I, I think it's definitely a mix of both like you need both the education the kind of the knowledge around like how do you think quantitatively how do you reason with data what are you know common statistical fallacies that you should be aware of when you're presenting data like all of those educational elements are are super necessary even even when we have like automated tools like that education that training is still like extremely important um and then i think the other aspect of this is uh when we talk about when when i think about accessibility and, and in particular like how it pertains to my work it's often around um the the probably the if, if you take all of the keywords I, I talked about earlier more around the programming aspect and also the, the the aspect around like hey you don't need to have like a phd in computer science to be able to do that so more around like the computing aspect um and how we can lower the bar there because um it's pretty rare for someone to have like both uh, a phd in biology and a phd in computer science um and so the the goal is that like how can we allow everyone to um be able to work with their data one of the I see like a synonym basically of data science when you think about tooling technology computing is Python. So how, is that like still a, a, to, to, to do data science, you at least need to know Python as a language to go do things. And actually to kind of broaden out the question is, 
per your perspective, like how have you seen something like Python come in and like change the data science landscape? Yeah, Python, like um, Python is a really interesting, uh, has a really interesting relationship with like data science. Uh, I, I think it was interesting because Python was one of the first languages that I learned for programming. Um, and um, it was just so accessible in the sense that like, um, if you if you ever learn like other programming language like Java or like C plus plus like the way the reason why Python is really special here is that like in Python uh, it's very high level it's a very high level language right it's like so you don't have to really think about types or memory allocation or any like low level details about uh, you know the computing stuff but it allows you to really focus on what you want to do with your data. Um, and you're, so you're not really like boggled down. You can just specify like, Hey, this is what I want to do. Um, and this is really important uh, as it relates to data science, because in, uh, when you're creating like, you know, data pipelines, data workflows and so on, you're always trying to like iterate really quickly. Um, no, no one ever like writes like end to end data science workflow, just like from scratch without ever trying things. You're always like running stuff and then like going back, changing something and then um, and then running stuff again. So there's a bunch of like trial and error. So data science is inherently like very iterative. Um, and so Python has some really nice element that couples well with that. One is that high level aspect that I just talked about. I think the other is like the fact that it's very interactive and the interactive aspect actually comes from the fact that uh, Python is an interpretive uh, interpreted language, which means that when you're running uh, Python code. It's not like Java or C where you have to compile it first and then run it, compile it first and then run it. So there's kind of like this uh, step between like compilation and like being able to see your results, right? In Python, it, because it's an interpretive language, you can just like run it. Uh, you can even run one line at a time. So like you run a line, you look at your results and then you run the next line, you look at your results. So it's very uh, easy to actually inspect your result and then figure out like, oh, okay, this is the next line of code that I want to write. Um, and so th that has led to the development of uh, things like IPython and Jupyter Notebooks, which is a very interactive development environment for data scientists to um, be doing data cleaning, transformation, all the way till visualization, uh, all in the, like a single development environment. So I think kind of those two aspects that are very unique. Uh, I mean, it's not completely unique to Python, but it's, it's one of the, uh, kind of the, the kind of the selling points of Python has made it very attractive for data scientists to say like, Hey, this is, like, this is a really easy way to get started, especially coupled with that fact that we talked about, which is most data scientists or the people that want to be working with data aren't really coming with like traditional, like, you know, uh, com computer science background, which means that, uh, if, a language like Python is really easy to pick up. Um, it makes a great kind of starter, uh, like intro to data science or intro to data science course, um, which is what we've been seeing uh, in the last, you know, five years, which is, you know, a bunch of these data science boot camps, Python boot, boot camps uh, aimed at uh, upskilling and helping people uh, get into data science. Yeah, I like that example you gave of, uh, you know, quants at a bank and, you know, maybe you know how to use a spreadsheet. Learning Python now can take what you're doing to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, and it's clear that notebooks have become very, very popular. And, and, you know, the popularity of Python obviously has a lot to do with that as well. I, I think it's interesting how there's sort of three trends I kind of see happening. And I'm curious, Doris, what your thoughts are on this are, you know, there's data science 
features being added into places like Excel and Tableau and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Then you've got specialized tools like data coup and, and data robot and things like that, which are trying to be low code, no code types of approaches to managing machine learning and things like that. Right. And then you have sort of, you know, notebooks and hex and Jupyter and things like that. And, you know, really more like, Hey, you should learn Python and Python's easy. Python is accessible, right. As sort of the third mm -hmm. category here. Do you see that one of these categories is going to kind of take over or do you see that there's space for all three of these as data science gets more accessible? Yeah, Tim, I think that's a really interesting way of putting like kind of the three categories. I never really thought about kind of the categorization of these, but I think that is that is correct that like, hey, one is kind of the low code, like no low code, no code tool, and then enhancing that with, you know, Python capabilities. Uh, we saw that with like the uh, Microsoft Excel feature with Anaconda, right? The fact that you can actually run these Python, um, you know, formulas, or these Python sort of procedures within Excel. Um, and then also kind of your typical, like I think of data robot and data IQ, uh, maybe Alteryx maybe also falls into that mix of like um, maybe an auto ML tool, but also it's doing a little bit of data prep. It has a little bit of um, some of the capabilities that you would expect from like a data platform. And then kind of the notebook, which I still think that notebooks is uh, still focused more on like the programmatic audience. When I say, to say programmatic, it's, you know, you're writing code to do something to your data. You're not doing point and click and so on. Now we, we are seeing kind of the blurring of those, those different lines with like, for example, Hex has a really nice interactive um, sort of uh, panel that you can actually look at a dashboard that is based on your, um, uh, your notebook and so on. So I, I do think that we're seeing a blurring of the lines across these three categories, you know, dashboards to um, automated tools like AutoML um, and then um, and notebooks and so on. And I think um, there's it, it serves different personas and audiences. And one of the funny things about like data tooling is that um, I think if you if you try to pack too much in a tool, you never please everyone. Um, and so I, I do think that each of these like categories of tools serve their, you know, uh, specific markets very well. That, that, I think that's a very uh, astute answer. And yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to build a spreadsheet BI notebook uh, auto ML tool, right? Uh, that's just the scope is too large. And how, how would that user experience even work anyway, right? And they're different personas and users. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that looking at these three categories, I'm surprised or, or actually where does like SQL fit into this? And, and I want to broaden off the question is like, we we're talking about data science, but then also where, where does data engineering fit into this? Because I, I, I feel that there's like so much overlapping work that occurs, right? That you, you said it earlier, like, oh, data scientists, like they, they clean the data. I'm like, well, isn't that something that now the data engineer is doing? And like, all that work is also happening in SQL, but they don't, but then people do the data scientists go do all this, uh, they all write all this Python code where you're like, all you just did was a join. Like that would have been like some, a SQL query. Like, so you, you both talked about these three categories. I'm like, so where does SQL fit into all of this? And then how does data science the data science work fit into the, like the data engineering work and how are the lines getting blurred over there? Yeah, oh, a I, broad, I just dumped a bunch of stuff at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of like Python and SQL, I mean, um, you know, SQL was developed 
like when relational databases were, were developed, right? It was de developed because, um, you know, people wanted the declarative way of saying, this is what I want to do with my data. And then I have this very intelligent uh, query optimizer that figures out like a query plan uh, and, and actually uh, figures out a plan to execute it on my database. That's why SQL was de developed in the first in the first place. It was called structured query languages. Um, and SQL was designed so that it was it had English phrases in it, such as like select uh, and from and where. Um, so those were like English like clauses. Um, and and it did really well, right? Like people were able to use SQL data analysts, uh, data engineers um, over the past two or three decades have been using uh, SQL to work with the data in their relational databases. I think uh, one of the reasons why you know, Python and other languages also, uh, um, you know, r rose over time was was the fact that one, not everyone puts their data in a relational database, right? Like data can be in spreadsheets, it could be images, it could be documents, it could be all sorts of different things. Um, and if you can't fit it into a relational database, you can't use SQL on it. Um, now, the second reason why like Python has also gained in popularity is also the growth of like machine learning um, and and sort of um, uh, machine learning and other uh, kind of ad advanced uh, data science workflows that people want to do with their data that traditionally would not fit very well in the in in the SQL uh, type of world. Now I think we are starting to see a blurring of the lines here uh, with a lot of like cloud data warehouse companies actually offering uh, Python native sort of APIs and solutions on top of their databases. So even today, like if you're a Python user, it's not just about, uh, you know, if you have your data in your database, you you don't have to write SQL to be able to work with the data. Like maybe you're a Python user. And, and the reason why we're seeing this shift in the market is um, if you actually look at the growth of these programming languages, like um, Stack Overflow does a survey every year where they survey data science, uh, they survey like, um, I think, um, basically like I think programmers, I, I can't remember exactly what's the population here, um, but it essentially um, Python, this was, I think this year or last year was the first year that Python took over SQL as uh, I think the third most popular programming languages. So both of them are hovering at around like 48, 49%. So basically like one in every two developers are using Python or SQL. Um, I do think Python and SQL are right uh, neck and neck right now. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, so, what's number one? I don't know, actually. Okay. We got to look it up quickly. <laughs> okay. So, so at the end of the day, like the, the, the lines are fully blurred here when it, I mean, at the end, it's like you just work in data. Like, and what does that mean? Like, well, everybody's definition of data is going to be very, different uh like i may call myself a data engineer right but i'm like mm -hmm. i'm kind of doing already some what some work that and somebody else are calling themselves a data scientist right so i think like that the, all these roles and titles are just being very blurred so i mean that that's an observation here out of this, this yeah. conversation well, well i think my my hope is that like um like i hope that in like five years or ten years the language that you pick um, doesn't actually limit you to what you can, can or cannot do with your data, which is like true today, right? Where like, hey, I can like, okay, like even without kind of the Python APIs on like databases, um, like the Python stuff all lives in Python land, all the database stuff all live in database land. Um, and like 
my hope is, is that in the future, like there are APIs that are uh, sort of agnostic to whatever like backend your data is stored in. Maybe it's a data lake, maybe it's a database, maybe it's something else. Uh, maybe it's a bunch of unstructured data or, or something like that. Um, and you can use Python, maybe if you like SQL, maybe you like, you know, Julia or whatever is your programming language of choice, uh, you're able to work with that data. And then the kind of the platform just like figures it out for you, right? Like figures out like what needs to be done to your data. That's kind of like to make data truly accessible. That's kind of where we want to be. Well, I'm going to put my, my same head as always. And I, 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 I agree with you. I'm like, okay. at the end of the day, like this shouldn't be like, oh, so if you're going to go use tool or tool language or whatever, A, you got to do it this way. And then, because that's how we generate silos of all yeah. this stuff. Right. So it's just like, it doesn't matter. Like at the end of the day, just use the tool that is most comfortable to you. And, but the, but for it all to work out, like the data needs to have your well-defined meaning. This is where I think mm -hmm. the semantics are going to play and the knowledge and all, the, all, the, all the, this plays an incredibly key role in order to accomplish that, 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 that vision. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's my perspective. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I, de I definitely agree. And I think uh, a lot of the work around like data discoverability and, you know, obviously catalogs and others is important to like enhance your data with that semantic information, that semantic layer. I think there's a lot of exciting work, uh, cutting edge work that's being done like over the past couple of years and like nowadays on 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 this front. Um, I'm looking at the question here that Malcolm has. And this is this. So this is the type of work. So you're saying like what you have data scientists who are like, are they using the outputs of these existing data management tools? So like, oh, tools that are already doing master data management, they're doing data quality, they're doing all the semantic and stuff. Or are they like taking it from the source and then they're doing that themselves that work and maybe even repeating it over and over? Like I'm, I, I see, I mean, I see both sides, a little, bit, kind of, both, a yeah. little <laughs> bit of both. Like, again, what, what's your perspective? Like how, 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 how do you see this today and, and where should this go? I think it's a little bit of both. Like definitely it depends on the workflows of like the data practitioner. It depends on the organizations that they work with and what workflows they have. Um, we do find that a lot of uh, uh, data scientists like to use their own tooling, but also oftentimes like that is dictated by like, hey, like what warehouses uh, are all your data stored in or like, hey, what's the typical workflows? So I think it's a little bit mix of both. Um, and I think for the data engineering use cases specifically, uh, we do see a lot of like people uh, writing uh, data pipelines and scripts uh, to pull all of that information together um, in-house. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> you know, one other thing, Juan, you brought up was data science versus data engineering. And I'm wondering, you know, is, is, when we talk about making data science more accessible, are we also talking about trying to make data engineering more accessible? And you know, Doris, how do you how do you feel about how those two fields are evolving? You know, together is this another area where the lines keep blurring? Yeah, I think traditionally, like data engineering has been focused on sort of the ETL uh, use cases, where you know, I'm you know, I'm I'm taking my data, I have to do like. Uh, some sort of transforms operations, typically in SQL, and then get it to a format that is clean that, you know, my BI analyst can, you know, plug in their Tableau and like look at the data. So that's kind of your typical, um, you know, workflow. 
Um, now, a lot of things are changing because of like uh, what that kind of this trend towards like the modern data stack, where you know you have uh, the an entire sort of stack based on uh, you know data that is in your warehouse. And so I think some of that is is evolving. But I think that uh, between like uh, data engineering and data science, one of the primary use case, uh, like one of the primary like handoff process that we we do see is that a lot of the times a data scientist would go in, they would develop some sort of, let's say like, uh, let's say a, a fraud prediction workflow based on some machine learning package. Now, this would be developed on a Jupyter notebook in like maybe a single node on my laptop and it works. It's like, okay, I have like 98% accuracy. I'm done for the day. Uh, but now a data engineer needs to be tasked with the job of like, hey, I need to now take that notebook translate it into something like Spark or like rewrite it into SQL or something that is a little bit like more robust so that we can actually deploy that workflow into production pipelines. And that friction point is is something that we see a lot. And, and it's a huge pain point, right? Obviously, because you're doing the exact same work, but you're kind of having to retranslate or rewrite those workflows into, you know, what, what they're calling like a more robust language. Um, and so that's that's one area where we've seen like that data science to data engineering handoff process being uh, you know pretty high on friction. This is a very interesting point you're bringing up, and let me like what's going through my head is the way I see this is like data engineering is run as you said like oh, the ETL, ETL, ELT, whatever it ends up in your database data lake, all that stuff, and then you want your analysts and also your data scientists to go find their data to go do their stuff, right? So then they go find the data and they go do the work that you described. And they're like, okay, I'm done. I did it on my laptop. But then there's like this cycle that it goes back saying, okay, now we need to put this into production. But, th but this isn't just about um, data engineering, go add it back to the data lake. I mean, it could be, it could be something like that, right? But it also, I think you kind of now the follow-up question is we talk about data science and data engineering is like so where does the data science and the ml engineering come in like i mean there's all these cycles that go around so first of all i, I what i want the point i want to make is like I, it's really interesting how you're bringing up that the output of a data scientist after they've done their work that comes from the work that a data engineer did the output of data scientist goes back inside to the data engineering and you have this circle and there's that friction there so that's a great observation. I never thought about it that way. So, so thank you. Uh, but then I'll, that also leads me to think is like, so where do these ML engineers now have go in and where's the friction with all the data science and data engineering and ML engineering and whatever more roles we're going to have come up with? Yeah, I think the use case that I referred to earlier probably is closer to what one would call a data, like a, a machine learning engineer at some companies. Machine learning engineers don't exist at some companies, so they're just called data engineers. So it's kind of synonymous kind of in, in, in that realm. But the idea there is like someone needs to take these models, these pipelines, uh, and put them into production so that they can be served, run uh, in, in, in a scalable manner. Here's a, an overly simplistic question for you. Um, you're, you're, you're growing a new data team, right? Are you going to hire a data engineer first or a data scientist first? Well, I guess my question is what kind of uh, data team, right? Because <laughs> it depends, right? Is it is the key challenge of, let's say I'm building a product or I'm building a data-driven product. Is the key challenge here or the key innovation here like a model breakthrough, like a breakthrough in how we can do the modeling on this specific type of data? 
or is it we know what the model is we know it's a very simple task we were able to replicate this but we need to serve it to a billion customers so that's that's kind of the the two questions i would would ask and that fork kind of determines like that team composition and who do you hire first and what is the roadmap uh you know going forward Mm, so the more novel it is what, that you're trying to do or discovery driven, then you may need, I mean, it depends on what kind of problem you're solving. It's solving on the more simple side, it might be an analyst on the more complex side, it might be a data scientist or a machine learning engineer or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, if you're, let's just say you're like, I, I've got customer data over here and I've got, you know, customer data over here and I want to combine it together and I want to stick it in Snowflake so I can make a dashboard. Well, then maybe, maybe you're talking a data engineer or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so like, I guess, so the, the point is that probably you're always going to start with more on the data engineering side because you need to kind of layer, lay, do the basic stuff first. And then later on, uh, you're always going to have a, a data science. I mean, well, I don't know. Now I'm, I'm mixed on that because uh, the, well, the other takeaway I took from you, Doris, was that like a lot of times the data scientists are the trailblazers, right? Well, it depends on how your data is and, and where it sits, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another t-shirt for the store. Yeah, it depends. Every, every, every that, that was, it, it depends. That's always the, uh, actually, that's a, that's a call out to, to our good friend, uh, uh, Sanjeev Mohan, which that's is, true. his show is called, it depends because you know what, that's probably the answer to most questions. <laughs> it, it depends. And it's hybrid, right? <laughs> it's a hybrid role. It's a hybrid strategy. <laughs> uh, well, so I'm curious is you've worked a lot of the open source world. How is what is the market of data science tools evolving? What's coming up next, and and what's the role of open source around all of this? Yeah, I think um, open source is like when I first discovered open source in I think when I was like an undergrad uh, in Berkeley, like I was like, wow, this is like a, a a brand new world. This is this is like this is crazy because people are you know people are developing these tools based on you know, the challenges that they have at work or something. And they're like, hey, I'm going to go and build this tool. And it's going to solve this pain point that I have. And, and these tools have, over time, gained such a huge community followership. Uh, you know, I'm talking about examples like, you know, NumPy, Scikit-learn, uh, Matplotlib, um, these things that have become standard tooling in data scientist toolbox. They, um, they are developed by uh, folks that just decided one day, like, hey, like I have this pain point, like plotting is very difficult. What if we had a library that made that easier? Or like, hey, numerical computing. Like I, I believe that that was developed by, um, you know, either a group of physicists or some a group of scientists somewhere for scientific research. Um, this whole ecosystem of like what they call like PyData ecosystem, like a Python data ecosystem, um, really have helped kind of Python create these higher level abstractions and APIs for like, what you want to do with your data. That might be data transformation, cleaning, uh, in the case of like pandas, or it could be like running machine learning models in the case of like scikit-learn. Uh, maybe you're like using stats model to compute some sort of statistics. So it's it's a really like amazing sort of um, avenue where like we have these like very rich abstractions APIs that are created, which makes it people like it, which makes it easier for people to create complex workflows. Um, and so we've started seeing this like explosion kind of, of, of tooling and um, and just like open source uh, projects. And I think, um, you know, 
the the ecosystems like um, you know GitHub and 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 other like community like resources that definitely help with with that growth um, with collaboration. And I think one of the things that I I've learned over time is that you know you might have like ten different tools trying to do the same thing, but usually like one or two tools win out. Um, like after after there's like a bunch of exploration in this space, like users end up gravitating towards one or two tools. And oftentimes those are not like the most complex, the most technically elegant, the fastest or the most performant tools. It's really like, what's the easiest thing to use? Like what's the easiest getting started experience? Um, and then I think the other aspect of it is like open standards. Like op we've seen time and time in like uh, in the in the data tooling space that open standards, open source, um, wins out over time than like proprietary solutions because as a data scientist i want a lot of control and understanding of what exactly is being done to my data like you wouldn't want to create a pipeline where there's like a giant black box and you're like oh i don't really know what it does but it like gives spits out like a 90 percent accuracy like that's not great because like eventually you you want you want to be able to tune you want to be able to like i think of it as like you're fixing a car right like you want to understand like what needs to be done to your car, you, you, um, you know, the gears that needs to be changed and everything. Um, but if it's all like taped up and everything, then you can't make any changes. You can't optimize for the performance and, and so on. And so um, I think open source and open standards provide uh, data scientists that like, like uh, sort of like peace of mind that they can always go in and make changes, uh, make modifications. Uh, and, and improve on their pipelines and so on, which is why, like, I think over time, like, uh, open standards have, open source and open standards have just, like, blossomed over proprietary solutions, especially in the data tooling space. So, so a couple, of, two, two things. One, can you give an overview of, I mean, I think the things you talked about, right, like NumPy and Pandas and stuff, like, this is all within the, the Python ecosystem. Like, what are the the categories within the Python ecosystem, like, oh, I'm trying to go do A and for A you want tool X, right? Like yeah. what, what, is, what does that landscape look like? Yeah, so I think I think of it as like, I'm a data scientist and what's my typical like data science workflow? So typically mm -hmm. I would start with maybe a CSV file. Let's just take a CSV file. I need to load in my data. And then I need to do some sort of transformation on my data. Um, so that for that, you want to use Pandas because Pandas comes with a very convenient uh, data loading, data transformation, data cleaning functionalities. So you use that to clean up your data. You do their transformations. Um, and then you're like, hey, but I, uh, you, I need to compute some sort of statistics or, um, you know, I, I need to run a machine learning model and so on. And, and then for that, um, you know, the, the standard tool here is like scikit-learn, right? You would use scikit-learn to train and fit a model. Um, you know, you create your train test data and then you, you, you know, you run, run the training, you, you do the prediction and then, um, and then you use something like matplotlib or Seaborn or Altair, uh, these visualization packages to then say, okay, I have all these, uh, you know, uh, model results. It's like zero one zero one zero one. Like it's all like binary numbers, right? Like, um, how do I visualize it? How do you understand what's going on with the model? And then you would use something like, uh, you know, a, um, 
one of these visualizations library to do that. So that's a very simplistic view of like kind of an end-to-end -end workflow. Obviously, depending on like, maybe you want to use more complex models. Maybe you would want to use like XGBoost for, uh, you know, training uh, your decision trees and, and so on. So there's all these 